0: Admittedly, I think this one of the two-parters is more interesting to me than the first one. Kind of the opposite of Best of Both Worlds. The first one does all the setup, obviously, so we have the situation and the the circumstances. But the second one is the payoff, and... Well, the payoff is good. (laughs) What do you want from me? I also have to admit, I find it fascinating. Several people, and I mentioned this kind of last week as well, found that this two-parter was a failure, a flop. That it wasn't what it should have been or what it could have been or whatever. And... What I really find weird about that is, according to a thing in the, uh, the Deep Space Nine companion I've got down there, there was this mention about how, to remember Paradise Lost, because apparently Iris Stephen Bear in particular thought this was an absolute failure, that everything went wrong and that nothing was good about the episode. I, I'm really confused by that type of attitude. I mean, granted, Iris Stephen Bear and I disagree on a lot of different things, but it's funny to me, since I consider this to be one of the best episodes of Deep Space 9 among the best episodes of Star Trek in general, and an absolutely amazing discussion and analysis of the overall issues and the complexity thereof. Now, granted, they were running into some serious budget issues, but to be perfectly blunt, I didn't even notice. They still show the battle between the Lakota and the Defiant reasonably well. They still show, you know, Odo doing his shapeshifty thing every now and again. And the main points of the episode don't require a lot of extensive graphics. There's even this one bit where Odo gives a Vulcan nerve pitch to someone... Because they didn't have the money for the effects budget of him going like they wanted to. But none of that detracted from the episode for me, you know? I don't know. Just, as ever, I love to hear your guys' thoughts. So if you have anything to say about this, please feel free to share. So, right at the beginning of the episode, they start to analyze the fact that things aren't quite right, which I do like. Um, They mention about how (laughs) <laughs> there's this nice little bit where uh, Joseph, Joseph Cisco is like, oh man, I've got tons of customers. You mean all the security people? Yeah, and I bet they haven't had a good meal in four days because it's been four days since the accident. And I bet he's right. <laughs> I mean, I'm not a big fan of MREs. I've heard that there are MREs that can actually be good. I'll, uh, I'll buy it when I see it. But at the same time, it's kind of very him to take that mentality. Like, look, I'm not a soldier or an officer or an anything. I'm a cook. That's what I do. There's a bunch of hungry people out there. It's not complicated, right? <laughs> and that the, the pseudo-simplicity of that outlook is very helpful. But there's a nice tipped uh, touch on that almost the very next scene. I'm kind of bouncing around a bit because the episode itself kind of dances between two perspectives for a bit. Uh, there's this bit where Cisco is there with Joseph, and Joseph happily gets tested, is proven to be fine, and then goes back to work. And and Sisko's like, you were so against this earlier. What's changed? And it's so funny because what Joseph says is so simplistic, again, and yet so profound in its own right. Well, yeah, that was before the Dominion attacked. One of the unfortunate realities is that, and and there's a line about this in the episode too, public support will change based on circumstance. Now, I mean, I know that sounds like a duh, but what I mean by that is, to go with a slightly less modern event, World War II. The polls and the overall general consensus of the population of the United States of America during World War II was, we're staying out of it. A lot of people who have studied this probably know what I'm talking about. There were several people at several levels of government who were doing things that could be perceived as treasonous in order to try and get support to Britain and to the to the Western Front in general. Then Pearl Harbor happened. Now, there's still some debate to this very day, actually, about the exact nature of the Pearl Harbor thing and if it was allowed to go forward and if it wasn't. I don't personally think it was deliberately allowed to go forward, but it is worth noting that the Pearl Harbor thing immediately and s- substantially changed public opinion in favor of war, and that's kind of what we have seeing here on Earth. Joseph Sisko, of course, as ever, provides us the down-to-earth, you know, individual perspective. He was very adamantly against these security measures until there was an attack that knocked out the power grid of the entire planet and then he was in favor of them. And again, as the Federation president mentions later, I forget how he pronounces his name, don't, don't ask me to. It's like Jarish Inyo or something like that. Anyways, um, the, the Federation president flat out says the popular opinion right now is in favor of these security measures, is in favor of trying to keep this in place. I I, I would actually risk running into uh, running against popular opinion if I decided to try and pull back on these things. It's an interesting insight into things because... It's also the sort of thing that's always temporary, right? You kind of, it's like, ha, outrage, and then outrage slowly dies down over time, especially if it's not renewed. And I'm not saying it wouldn't be renewed or not, it's just an interesting insight into the mentality of the whole situation. And again, kind of showcases the dynamic nature of human existence, or at least sentient sapient existence, by which I mean... We are adaptive beings. It's, 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 if, if I was to use one word to describe humanity, it would be the word adaptive. We, you know, Joseph says, I'll use him as the specific. I want to live. I don't care if it's a shorter life. I don't care if it's a less secure life. I want to live. Oh, God, quick, security, security, security. And yet I guarantee you over time, that opinion would slowly shift back into the former as he adapts to the circumstances, first in one direction then the other. It's fascinating to look at from an external perspective, especially given that I myself have, am no. I, I'm not an exception here, right? I'm not like I'm some kind of neutral observer. It's just I can see other people's reactions in events that don't affect me. Then we have a couple of really good scenes where Cisco slowly deduces what the hell's going on with Red Squad. One of the things I like about this episode is it doesn't maintain the mystery long at all. In fact, pretty much right off the bat, it's like, this is weird. Like That's one of the very first things. One of the very first scenes is, something's up with Red Squad. And remember, they kept laying those, that groundwork in the first episode. So then he calls up the one captain, uh, or, and, you know, Odo's just off camera there. Nice touch. Learns about the whole Red Squad redeployment thing. And the Bolian captain, the guy loyal to Leighton, is like, Oh, whew, thanks for catching that, Cisco. Good thing. That would have caused us a lot of problems. I'll let you handle that. And Cisco, of course, does a wonderful job of playing along. Of course I'm in on it, of course. Now, maybe you should tell me the thing I'm in on. No, he doesn't do anything stupid like that. He just rolls with it. He just maintains the illusion that he is in on this whole thing. Which brings me to two excellent scenes. First of all, Nog shows up to to talk to Cisco, And Cisco's like, hey, I need to know about Red Squad. And Nog's like, no, nah, I shouldn't tell you. Cisco then just reads him the riot act. And Nog's like, oh, yep, 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 okay, yes, sir, here's, here's the names. Also, quick aside, why are Red Squad names hidden? Like, wasn't he even said in the last episode, this is supposed to be like a reward for good behavior, right? Like, it's an elite group, they get better everything. How exactly are Red Squad's names hidden? That actually makes no sense to me on any level whatsoever. <laughs> That'd be like, I mean, how do you even keep that hidden? All right, so Red Squad's doing a mission today. Oh, hello, Billy and Bob and, and Joe and Joina and Bobina and Billinia are all gone. Huh. I wonder if they're in Red Squad. Anyways, like, that's just such a stupid idea. But hey, let's, let's, let's get over that. So then Sisko brings in the cadet. And what I love about this is Sisko just plays the line officer and plays to his pride. You you screwed up. You did some slam, damn sloppy work. Some slam-doppy work. Um, And the cadet, of course... He, he buys right into it. Nope, we did it perfectly. I'm going to tell you exactly what we did. And I'm going to tell you it perfectly, and everything is perfect. And he, get, he just, a credit to the guy who plays uh, the, uh, the Red Squad guy. I can't even think of his name right now. Uh, I want to say it was this person, uh, Riley Aldrin Shepard. Let me lift this up really quick. Yeah, that's him. He's actually, uh, funnily enough, he's in the episode defi- uh, Valiant, excuse me, later on how i knew him but anyways so he uh he starts off just being like oh god what have you wrong and by the end of his briefing his entire expression has gone from like the pseudo concerned thing to, to barely concealed grin as he's speaking with absolute pride at how well his operation went over nice touch there cisco so this leads to <laughs> the final scene where they're like okay we have pretty decent proof That as of this moment, something happened and that power outage was caused by Starfleet. And what I find weird, I know this is kind of a strange thing to comment on, but why didn't they record that conversation with the cadet? Like, there's several ways to do that. And apparently they decided not to, because then they have to talk about getting proof for, like, the next several scenes. But anyways. So, (sighs) Odo and Sisko talk about the reality of the situation. And they both logic their way through the thing that anybody with a third party. party perspective would have already guessed this is not of any benefit to the dominion taking out that power grid would have made sense if it was an immediate precursor to an absolute military invasion but there is no fleet there are no armies there has been no invasion so taking out the power grid actually accomplished the exact opposite what the changelings would want increased security measures increased alertness and increased military readiness it's, I mean, granted, the Dominion is going to get, make some damn stupid decisions in the future, but this seems like actively going completely contrary to what they're after. It only makes sense if someone's doing it who wants increased security, increased military awareness, and increased defenses. There's this really good scene where Sisko has basically come to the conclusion that he's still struggling to, to a, adapt to, that Starfleet officers really did make this happen and this is a Starfleet operation shades of conspiracy here tng season one but my favorite part is that he's talking to odo about this he says i don't want to betray these my people what i find interesting about deep space nine is multiple of the main cast members all go through that exact same story arc at multiple times throughout the show bashir goes through it and something we're not going to get too far like another season uh Cisco obviously goes through it. Worf goes through it. Odo goes through it. Kira goes through it multiple times. Dukat goes through it at least twice. You know, Many of the main characters, not all of them, but many of the... Oh, Worf, obviously. Did I hear you say Worf? Most, they all go through the same character arc. They are such and such, and they're either of an organization or a species or whatever, and they basically are betrayed by that organization. It goes in a direction they don't morally agree with, and they have to figure out what to do about that. What I find most interesting about this specific example... Not only the fact that it's Starfleet, which probably would never have happened if, you know, this is still under the direct thumb of Rick Berman, or Roddenberry for that matter, but also the fact that he's talking about this to Odo. Odo gives him a line. This is not you turning against them. They have already turned against you. And that line really resonated with me because I like to think that that's what Odo tells himself all the time. And indeed, it's actually kind of interesting because, as we already found out, Odo still wants to go home. But even when offered the actual choice to do so... Oh yeah, Garrick goes through this too. Even when offered the actual choice to do so, he says no. Because Odo just cannot reconcile this. In, in an ideal circumstance, he would want to go home to his people. Just like Worf would. Just like Kira would. Just like Garrick would, right? Just like Kork would. Kork goes through this too, it just occurred to me. But he can't. Because things are not ideal. And so Odo accepts being an outcast. Just now Cisco is having to face the same problem. It's just an interesting little dynamic. I don't even know if it was intentional or not. So there's this really great scene where Admiral Leighton goes and this right here is the strength of the episode in my opinion. Because Admiral Leighton is not a villain. Or not a bad guy, depending on how you want to define it. I know different people define villain versus antagonist versus bad guy differently. So the point being, he is not evil. There is no greed in him. There's no power hungry. This is not his desire to rule on high as Sultan. This is just him trying to do what he legitimately believes is best for his people. Indeed, I see in Leighton a feedback loop of his mentality. I see in him someone who understands just how dangerous and terrifying of a threat the Changelings are, and basically can't reconcile that. Keep in mind, we are shown multiple times that all these increased security protocols mean nothing. In fact, we are shown it twice just in this episode. Once when O'Brien goes to have his chat with Cisco, and once when Odo effortlessly infiltrates and lets Cisco get out after he's been imprisoned. Twice, they just, without even trying, completely bypass those security measures. See, that's kind of the point, isn't it? It's like trying to hold on to something that's so slippery, it's squeezing out of your grasp as you're gripping it tighter. But what else are you going to do but grip it tighter? If you let go, it's just going to be gone. That's like the mentality going through Leighton's mind here. He has to do this. What else is he going to do? Nothing? How could he possibly stand by and do nothing while changelings are provably here and actively murdering people? Just allow them to to operate all willy-nilly? No! No, this is Starfleet, and this is his home, and his jurisdiction, and his job, his duty, his responsibility to try and save these people from this external threat at whatever cost. We'll have to find some new way of fighting it, some method of combating these changeling bastards that are ruining my home. It's so easy to see Leighton's side of things, and that's what I like most about this episode. It doesn't portray him as a bad guy. In any sense, really, it portrays him as someone who is effectively lost. He lost against the Changelings, in other words. They successfully won by how they pushed him and how they prodded him. There's this bit, like I just mentioned, where, where O'Brien, sh- O'Brien shows up. And it's immediately after the scene with Leighton. You know, Go home, Ben. And O'Brien's there. And he says, hey, I just wanted to chat for a bit. It's okay. Listen. How many of us do you think there are here? Would you believe there's only four of us on the entire planet? Now, i got to be honest. Both when I was a kid and in every repeat viewing, my first thought is, you have that many? I mean, the Federation's a big place. You have four changelings assigned to one planet? Jesus. I mean, I know it's the headquarters and all. But at the same time, O'Brien's point, you know, the changeling's point, is very well received, isn't it? Think about it. If you have that level of infiltration capacity... You don't need more than four, do you? Like he himself says. Now, he also has one other line, which I really wrote, I wrote down because I wanted to get it word for word. We don't fear you the way you fear us. Now, that is a very interesting line and very accurate for the way the Changelings have been portrayed. Because, remember, the Changelings do fear solids. That is arguably one of the main predominant points behind their mentality and everything they've been doing for the last several millennia at this point. The entire establishment of the Dominion was because of fear of solids, because of their need for security and eventually their need for order. Why fear what you can control, right? But again, the way he says that is still indicative. We do not fear you the same way you fear us. And that's the part that really makes that brilliant. Because one changeling does not fear an army of solids. But an army of solids is a terrified of one changeling, so then, of course, Cisco has this wonderful scene with his dad it's it, There's a lot of really good human moments. I think that helps really elevate the scene because this is a huge high level political drama. This is basically the beginnings of what could have been a federation civil war, which would have been oh, that would have been bad <laughs> that would have been so bad, but in the midst of this whole civil war possibility thing. The camera always stays way down on the individual perspective. they talk about you know his old crush that he had as a kid and how he asked out the other girl. But the thing that he says, I, I kind of like the advice because it is as ever about approaching a situation on a case by case basis because what he says is, at a certain point, you need to stop thinking and start doing, and I agree at a certain point, you do need to stop thinking and start doing. I'm not saying you should stop thinking entirely. I'm saying that at one point or another, you need to start taking action. And so Cisco decides, all right, I'm going to do this. So Cisco <laughs> tries to go take his evidence to the president. And then it's like, oh, hey, let's blood test you. And I'm like, Cisco's just like, really? There's actually this great scene where after the blood thing, he just tosses the pad onto the desk in disgust. What I love about this scene is that anyone from an external perspective, like, oh, I don't know, us, the viewers, knows that that's Cisco, not a changeling. Not just because of the fact that we've been following this whole time, but because of the way he acts. We know how the changelings act when they're f- found out, right? And it's not like this. In fact, most changelings, when they're found out, bail almost immediately. In their, in, you know, like, and out the window, or out the vent, or into the sky, something, right? But in this case... <laughs> In this case, Cisco is just, ugh, just like Eddington was back in the adversary, which is funny because in both cases they were not the changelings; they were falsely accused. Really effective blood, those blood tests, aren't they? And then we have a nice little bit where, of course, you know, Cisco, of course, just goes along with it, just like Eddington did, and he's just sitting there, and he and Leighton have a little discussion, and Leighton's like, "Look, I'm just going to keep you here for the time being. If you need anything, you know, just let me know." Once again, Leighton is the opponent to Cisco. But there's no rancor there. There's no bitterness. There's no malevolence. There's no malice. It's just, all right, well, I was hoping you'd be with me on this one, but whatever, I guess. So then Odo neck pinches. I already mentioned that. And again, I have to mention the sheer irony of how easy, effortlessly it was for Odo to be able to infiltrate and get him out. If he actually was a changeling, he could have just been maintaining his shape this whole time. And then another Changeling could have slipped in and got him out just like that. Which is exactly what effectively happens. It's just, it's Odo and Cisco rather than Changeling and Changeling. This is when we find out what was going on with the wormhole, which I actually find interesting. They had that right at the beginning of the first episode. We don't really pay it off until the end of the last episode. Again, this makes a lot of sense. As I mentioned, you know, the Dominion messing with people using the wormhole made a degree of sense. Starfleet doing that to lay the seeds of doubt for the possibility of a Dominion invasion makes a lot more sense. <sighs> see, the interesting thing about all of this is they the, the Starfleet personnel involved feel the need to increase security. But they can't do that legally and normally. So they invent a reason to do so. In order to get to the actual reason. See, this is this is the most fascinating thing about this episode to me. Because what the, the Federation People, excuse me, what the Starfleet people are doing is arguably wrong, but it's also arguably right. Remember in the whole debate between security and freedom, neither side is 100% correct, as I said earlier. Circumstantially, certain things may lean one way or the other. But in the long term, in the philosophical sense, there's no correct answer there. Which leads me, of course, to the idea of lying to tell the truth. What Leighton and his people are doing, what his, his coup is, is doing, is, attempting, is deceiving and, and lying and manipulating people for the efforts of a truth, that the changeling... Because the changeling threat is real. The Antwerp bombing was real. The changelings are on Earth. This is a proven fact. And yet, they can't just use that as justification. They need to come up with all this other stuff. It's fascinating in its own right. There's, there's this little... Bit, I just wrote this note here as an aside. The whole crew of the Defiant's been replaced by changelings. What? Does anyone believe that? That's actually insane. Why would they do that? Anyways, I'm getting off topic. So, <clears throat> this is the real point here. I feel like this is probably the one and only way the episode stumbles a little bit. Cisco makes it clear that he is adamantly against this whole thing on a moral principle perspective. That this is wrong. That you have betrayed Starfleet. That you have betrayed us. You talk to me of loyalty. You've betrayed your oath. Blah, 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 blah. Leighton himself, of course, talks about the chain of command and how loyalty is a thing and how you, at a certain point you have to obey your officers. There's a whole topic I could discuss about the very nature of chain of command and the weirdly morphic nature of chain of command, which is true in real-life militaries as well. In other words, if you've ever seen the fictional concept of you must follow orders no matter what, that's not really how real-life militaries tend to work. In fact, it is considered many officers' duty, at least here within the United States military, to question orders if they believe they are significantly wrong. If, however, that question is then answered properly, it is then your job, even if you disagree with them, to do everything you can to fulfill that order. In other words, questioning the chain of command is built into the chain of command, and that's the thing Leighton seems to miss here. He does try to argue with Cisco. He does try to make Cisco see his side of the argument, but ultimately he fails because Cisco is so morally against the entire idea from a baseline. What I find most fascinating about all of this is Cisco, of all people, was one of the best suited uh, Starfleet personnel, uh, main characters of a Star Trek show, I should be more accurate, to see how foolhardy this attempted coup really is. Now, I keep calling it a coup. It's not quite a coup. It's a little more gray than a coup. But I don't know what else to call it. You know, state of emergency takeover? I don't know. But because think about this for a moment. What's about to happen is Leighton's going to make an announcement saying that Starfleet, as in, the military branch of the Federation is now in charge of Earth and its security for the, for the duration of the emergency. And as Cisco points out, what if people don't agree with that? Now he's supposed, mostly speaking from a political angle, from a diplomatic angle. What if other planets, other member species disagree with this? What if other members of Starfleet disagree with this? What if there are aspects of Starfleet, of the military, who do not think this is the correct thing to do? What if there's a disagreement? What if Leighton is, what if the the member states of the federation band together, or at least enough of them, and call for Leighton to stand back down and put the president back in charge? Not like you must die or whatever, but just, no, we disagree with what you're doing. We do not accept a military dictatorship, even as a temporary state. And then what if Leighton says, no? This is civil war we're talking about here. This is civil war amongst people who just disagree about something, philosophically. One of the worst possible types of war. Civil wars, I should clarify. And yet, the episode just kind of skims over that issue. And I I feel, like I said, I feel that's the one flaw there. Because that's the real problem here. Leighton basically can't succeed. The only way he could ever possibly succeed is if he took control and everyone was cool with that. Which will not happen. Not with a group as diverse and as peace-loving and treaty-loving as the Federation is. That's not going to happen. So there are going to be groups that say no. Are they going to leave the Federation? Will they be suspected for being changeling infiltrated if they leave the Federation? And again, like I said, what about the members of Starfleet? Because you know there will be members of Starfleet who don't agree with this. Hell, I bet there would be in- situations where even crew on an individual ship would disagree with each other on this point. This is a mess in the making. And that, I think, it really helps to emphasize, more than anything else, Leighton's mentality. Once again, credit to Foxworth and the way he plays him. Because, again, this isn't about power. This isn't about control. Actually, it kind of is, but this isn't about power. This isn't about dominance. This isn't about, I want, and I... No, he doesn't want to rule on high. I already said that. He really thinks this is the only way. He has to control the situation, and this is the final, most subtle parallel of the episode, of Admiral Layton to the Founders. He wants to make a Dominion too. That is what he's after. That is exactly his purpose. He wants to establish an absolute military uh, uh, autocracy, excuse me, (laughs) autocrat, yeah, that's right. He wants to have an autocracy underneath the military to have absolute control to ensure the safety of its own people. In fact, he even focuses almost universally on Earth itself, not Starfleet and the Federation in general. And so he just, the difference is the founders are screwed up But maybe they weren't at the beginning. It kind of makes you think, right? Maybe originally there were founders who were just kind of like, oh, God, we've been hounded and terrified for years. What do we do? And the female founders, like, the female changing is like, you know, we could establish a military dictatorship. We could have this control. And if the solids are under control, they won't be a threat to us. Oh, that's true. The Dominion, I, I mean, I know STO contradicts this, but the Dominion could have started from good intentions. You could see the beginnings of a very dark path here. That's assuming that it even succeeds. Again, the nature of the Federation... This is civil war, like I said. Except Leighton finally admits that he has lost. There's this great bit... There's the battle between the Lakota and the Defiant. I'm not going to complain about that. An Excelsior B being able to stand up against the Defiant is just ridiculous. But at the same time, we do know the Defiant's been holding back and allowed them to get some initial shots and refused to take the killing blow, even though they could have. So I I can kind of buy that this souped-up Excelsior is able to stand up against the Defiant. Barely, but I gotta be honest, I still don't quite buy it. Let's be honest, the reason that they're using this particular model for the Excelsior is because they had the Enterprise-B model fresh and handy because Generations was relatively recent, so, you know. Anyways. (sighs) Worf is talking about the reality of here, and he's like, this is... Killing that ship is not an option. And Kira says, well, it's us or them. And then everyone just kind of pauses for a minute, and they just all consider. This is the beginning of the Civil War right there. The only thing that changes it is the captain of the Lakota, uh, Bentine, Captain Bentine, stands down. That's the only thing that stops that spark from spreading. You remember a few episodes in the episode Shakar, where there's the Bajorans and the other Bajorans? And remember, they're sitting there talking, and then one of them fires... And then Kira, Shakar, and the Colonel, I forget his name, please forgive me, are just frantically, no, no, stop, 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 no, no. Everyone put your weapons down. Everyone stop. And they came that close. That's what this incident was. It was that close to being a spark that would have actually caught. Now, by luck, it didn't catch. But you'll notice there were 26 casualties. Two known casualties, two deaths on the Defiant, and 24 suspected casualties on the Lakota. It's a lot of people that die for basically nothing. They got really lucky that the Lakota decided to stand down. Because I'm not even sure if the Defiant would have fired if it had to. The episode kind of wraps up pretty quickly. But what I like best is the episode doesn't resolve the dilemma. It doesn't give you the right answer. We know what answer they have chosen. Cisco says it himself, and I quote, If they want to destroy what we've built here they'll have to do it themselves we will not do it for them but the changelings are still a threat they are still here on earth they have still infiltrated just like joseph Sisko, who is still sick and is still not really taking care of himself and that is also similarly unresolved i think that's really the most the, the best power of the episode right there because it shows that there is no right answer to such complex situations, especially when you are facing a threat this significant. And it also shows... How does it end this episode? This episode about civil war and insurrection and changing infiltration, it ends on a bunch of people entering a restaurant to have lunch. That down-to-earth human perspective helps really emphasize the nature of what's going on in this episode. Because, again, that is the fabric of the Federation. The coordination, the cooperation, the mutual respect and trust. That fabric is the Federation. It's not the bases. It's not the, the, the points themselves. But it's the connections between the points. And we get to see that full view as the episode ends. Great, great episode. If it's not obvious, I really, really like this two-parter. Sorry for gushing so much. I hope you guys have enjoyed. I'll see you next time.